Let's take our Bibles and begin by reading in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Again, that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, and I'll begin in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, And who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Uh, Scripture as a whole is compelling. Uh, This little portion in particular is very compelling. Why? Why? Uh, Simply put, these verses are full of surprises, Uh, full of the unexpected. Things we don't see coming happen in this narrative, in this story, and it it engages us, and it it draws us in, and it it is compelling as it is penned and as it is displayed, put on display for us. And that's how I want us to approach it, approach it this day. I want to, us to focus in on six surprises, uh, six things that happen in this narrative that are 
unexpected. They take someone by surprise. And so the first surprise is this. Uh, There is a surprising tragedy. And we read of this tragedy beginning in verse 21. It continues into verse 22, culminates in verse 23. Let me set the scene. Uh, The Lord Jesus with his disciples have, have visited the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, where the Lord Jesus had an encounter with a man possessed by a demon, a demon named Legion. And the Lord Jesus has cast out Legion from this man. He has now sent this man back home to testify to the mercy of God as experienced in his life. The Lord Jesus and his disciples, they've embarked again on, on on their journey back across the Sea of Galilee, back to where they had begun this journey in the beginning. And once they reach shore, this man, we're given his name, Jairus, right there in verse 22. We're also given another important detail. Uh, He is one of the rulers of the synagogue. In other words, this is an important man. Uh, This is a public figure. This is a public official. That Jairus, when he hears that the Lord Jesus has returned back across the sea and that he is nearby, look at what we read in verse 22. He, seeing him, he goes to him, he falls at his feet, an expression of humility. And then verse 23, implores him, begs him. What is the content of his request? It's right there in verse 23, his own words. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. A little later in this passage, we discover that this little girl is actually 12 years of age. Luke, in his account of this same incident, he includes another interesting detail. It is this. This is Jairus' only child. So here we have the unexpected. 12-year-old girls are not supposed to die. Here we have a surprising tragedy. And you can imagine Jairus. Here is a man going out of his mind. Here is a man who is standing helplessly by as something that is not supposed to happen, happens. His daughter, his only daughter, his child, is on the precipice of death. And so out of his mind, he hears that the Lord Jesus is back. He seeks for the Lord Lord Jesus, he finds the Lord Jesus, and he implores the Lord Jesus, come with me. My daughter is about to die. Lay your hands on her that she might live. It is a surprising tragedy. It is perhaps, and I don't think there's anyone here who would disagree with me, it is perhaps the most painful tragedy when it comes to human experience, the loss of a child. I remember walking into a hospital room eight years ago. My sister, brother-in-law, newborn baby, they knew the prognosis. The little thing, Michaela, lasted eight days. The emotion, raw with emotion. Can you picture this man, Jairus, out of his mind, beside himself, what... What will this do to me? What will this do to my wife? What will this do to our marriage? And off he goes in pursuit of the Lord Jesus. 
and he implores him, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. It is a surprising tragedy. Second surprise is this. A surprising delay. It begins in verse 24, and this delay continues until verse 30, 31. And so look at what we read at the outset of verse 24. He went with him. That is, the Lord Jesus went with Jairus. I've heard your request. I think we can assume that the Lord Jesus agrees to, uh, to accompany Jairus to his home and to lay his hands on this girl that she might be made well and might live. And so off they set on their journey. And uh, we, important detail there in verse 24, there's a great crowd, there's a throng of people around them. This multitude of people. And you can imagine Jairus. You can imagine Jairus calling out to people out of the way. Out of the way. Time is of the essence. This is, this is urgent. This is an emergency out of the way. You can almost visualize him physically pushing people out of the way. Wanting to take the Lord Jesus by the hand and break into a run. Because this is urgent. And yet Jairus is not the only player in this narrative. Suddenly, in verse 25, this is fascinating and and, and it is most significant. Jairus all of a sudden recedes into the background. All of a sudden he's gone. Because you see, there's someone else present. There is someone else lurking on the outskirts of this multitude. There is this woman, unnamed, unimportant in comparison to Jairus as a public figure. She is unseen, she is unnoticed, she is undetected, and she creeps quietly, silently through this crowd. She has been plotting and planning this for days, perhaps weeks, perhaps months. She has her eyes fixed on the target, and it is the hem of Christ's garments. We're given quite a description of her. I want you to notice four things. In verses 25 and 26, this woman, the first thing is this, 25th verse. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years uh, this woman has been ill. Uh, 12 years this woman has, has struggled with this physical ailment. Understand this, it, it escapes our notice because this detail isn't included, but it is assumed. Because of this discharge of blood, do you know what this makes her as a Jew? Unclean. Please understand, friend, this woman is a social outcast. Anything she touches for 12 years is unclean. Anyone who touches her is unclean. Anyone who touches anything she has touched is unclean. This has been her condition for 12 years. Years. Notice the second detail in verse 26. Who had suffered much under many physicians. And so she had traveled far and wide in search of medical help. She had heard reports of some physician, some doctor, some healer in some far off town. And off she'd gone on that journey seeking help. 
No use. And then she'd heard of someone else. Someone had recommended another individual down south, and off she'd gone in pursuit of help. No help. She'd gone hither and thither looking for aid, a physician, a healer, someone who could do something for her. And notice the detail. It's not, it's not just that these physicians had been able, unable to help her, but that she had actually suffered at their hand. Suffered much under many physicians. So what these physicians had prescribed for her had actually compounded her pain and suffering. Notice the third detail, still there in verse 26. She had spent all that she had. So she's at the end of her rope. She's at the end of all hope. She is now destitute. And then the fourth detail, right at the end of verse 26, she was no better, but rather grew worse. So it's not just that these physicians were unable to heal her, remedy her situation. These physicians were even unable to stop her condition from getting worse. And so this nameless woman, This shadow of a figure just creeping through the crowd, destitute, social outcast, 12 years of grief and suffering, her situation hopeless and helpless, and yet look at what we read at the start of verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. What had this woman heard? Maybe she had heard about how the Lord Jesus uh, cleansed the leper. Uh, Perhaps she had heard of how the Lord Jesus calmed the storm. Perhaps she had heard of how the Lord Jesus healed the paralytic. We don't know what details she has heard, but this woman has garnished enough. She has heard enough to know that the Lord Jesus is someone who can help her, and so she comes up behind him. Verse 27, stretches out her hand, And she touches his garment. And immediately, what do we read in verse 28? Verse 29, immediately she perceives that the flow of blood had dried up. She felt in her body from this mere touch that she was healed of her disease. Now, she's not the only one who perceives it. Uh, She's not the only one who knows it. In verse 30, 30, we realize that the Lord Jesus also knows what has happened. He perceives that power has gone out from him. This is interesting. That word power uh, in the Greek is a word uh, dunamis. It's the first time Mark uses it. It's the origin of our English word dynamite. This is explosive. Boom. This is explosive power. The Lord Jesus knows power has gone forth. The Lord Jesus knows that this woman has been healed. And so he asks the question right at the end of verse 30, Who touched my garments? Now we'll get to the significance of the question in just a moment, but I want you to remember primarily the surprise that's in view. What is it? This is a surprising delay. Please remember, Jairus hasn't made his way home. Jairus is still standing there. Jairus is witnessing all of this. And Jairus sees the Lord Jesus stop in his tracks. And then he hears the Lord Jesus utter this question, who touched me? What do you think is running through Jairus' mind at that very moment? 
Who cares who touched you? My daughter lies at home on her deathbed. Moments. We only have moments. Run, man. Undoubtedly, that is what Jairus is thinking. And then to his utter shock and horror, the Lord Jesus plants his feet, begins to look around in the midst of this throng of people. I mean, people pressing up against him real close, face to face, and all of a sudden asks above the crowd, who touched me? Who's touched you? Hundreds of people have touched you. Jairus is shocked by this delay. It is something unexpected. The third surprise I want you to notice is this. There is a surprising question. You've already heard it right there at the end of verse 30. Who touched my garments? His disciples who are right there, they hear it. Uh, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? It's a surprising question. A surprise to whom? This woman. Uh, This woman thought she was on some sort of special ops mission, didn't she? Stealth. It's all about stealth. I'm going to get in, get done, get out. And it'll be my little secret, and no one will ever know. And then she hears these dreaded words, who touched my garments? Friends, the Lord Jesus knows who touched his garments. I kind of hazard a guess that as the Lord Jesus is looking over the crowd, he even lingers as he sees her and looks her directly in the eyes and then moves on and asks, who touched my garments? The question, friend, is not for Christ's benefit. The question is for this woman's benefit. He wants her to go public. Why? Because she has two problems. Yes, she suffers from this ailment, diseased, and she struggles and suffers under the weight of shame. Christ has healed her. He is not going to allow her to slink away and recede undetected into the crowds through the throng as she had come. This woman is going to leave with her head held high and her dignity intact. Who touched me? She knows she's found out. She confesses it. And so the Lord Jesus speaks to her directly comes out right there in verse uh, uh, 34, speaks to her directly in the audience of all, daughter, your faith, faith in me, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It was a surprising question. The fourth surprise is this, a surprising death. Verses 35 and 36. And so we see Christ, we hear Christ in conversation with this woman. We hear him uttering these words. In our mind's eye, we can picture Jairus standing off to the side, dumbfounded by what is happening, looking to home. If he'd had a watch, looking at his watch, that's just us overwhelmed with a sense of urgency, wondering why, why he's delayed. If any doctor carried on like this, if any doctor spent the time to treat this woman and, and, and put her pri- give her priority over someone who is dying, that doctor would be charged with malpractice. What, what is he doing? 
Why is he giving such time to her, such attention to her, such focus to her when he has to run? And he's looking this way, he's looking that way, he's looking this way, and then to his horror, what does he see? Faces he recognizes. With tears streaming down their faces as they make their way to him, he knows what's coming. He knows the message they are about to deliver before they even verbally utter it. Your daughter is dead. What need is there to trouble the, ta- the teacher, the master, further? In other words, uh, while your daughter was alive, uh, there, there was a glimmer of hope. She is dead. There is no longer any hope. It is a surprising death. I dare say this is not how Jairus thought things were going to transpire. This is not how he thought this situation was going to play out. He would find the Lord Jesus. He would present his case. Christ would agree to accompany him. They'd get home just in the nick of time. And Christ would lay his hands on his little girl and she would be made well. Here he is now confronted with a surprising death, a surprising reality. And notice Christ's response to him. Christ knows why these men are here and what they are saying. And he turns to Jairus. And what does he say to him? Do not be afraid. Only believe. Now, friends, think it through. Do not be afraid. Only believe. What does that word of exhortation mean now to Jairus, given what he has just witnessed? Are you with me? What does that command? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Only believe. What does that mean to Jairus in light of what he has just heard the Lord Jesus say to the woman with the discharge of blood? A daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jairus has seen firsthand This woman's riveted faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has seen the Lord Jesus Christ heal this woman. Jairus has had put on display before him a wonderful example of faith in the king. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for this woman. With that now vividly before him, the delay begins to make sense, doesn't it? Yes, Jairus, we're going to your home. I'm going to teach you something first. Yes, you think it's all urgent and you're all worked up into a tizzy and it's all an emergency. No, 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 no. We'll get there eventually. There is something you're going to learn first. And there is this wonderful delay witnessed by Jairus himself and then the Lord Jesus driving home the application with that comforting word of exhortation. Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And then it's followed by a fifth surprise, a surprising miracle. It begins in verse 37 right through to verse 42. And so the Lord Jesus sets off with Jairus, takes Peter, James, and John. They come to the house, and as they approach the house, as they draw near, they hear the commotion. They hear the weeping. They hear the wailing. This is a synagogue official. This is a a public figure, a popular man. 
His family is there. His extended family is there. His neighbors are there. His colleagues are there. The whole community is there. And there is this tumult. There is this commotion. And the Lord Jesus, this is wonderful. He walks into the midst of it all. And what does he say? The little girl is sleeping. She's not sleeping. She's dead. What does he mean? I'm going to do something for that little girl as if she were merely asleep. And when the people hear it, they ridicule him. And so what's Christ's response? Right, you, 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 and you. There's the door. Use it. Don't let it hit you on the way out. He clears the house. Everyone is gone. And you've got Peter, James, and John. You have Jairus, and you have his wife. And he takes them. And takes them to this little girl. He touches this little girl. And he utters this simple phrase, little girl, arise. And immediately she arose from the dead. Is that what Jairus was expecting? This is a surprising miracle. When Jairus sets off to find the Lord Jesus, he is hoping for and he is expecting the Lord Jesus to heal his daughter of a disease. What does he end up witnessing? The Lord Jesus raises his daughter from the dead. This is a surprising miracle. And then the sixth surprise, it's a command, surprising command, verse 43. And he, the Lord Jesus, strictly charged them that no one should know this. In other words, don't tell anyone, keep it to yourself. And told them to give her something to eat. Why why, why would he say that? Why would he command them uh, to not share this news, to not share with anyone what had happened? He's done the same thing in the past. When he's healed people in the past, he's told them to keep it to themselves. When he's cast out demons in the past and they begin to declare, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, he has ordered them to keep quiet. Why? Because at this stage in his ministry, the Lord Jesus is seeking to avoid excessive popular enthusiasm. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has come to die. And the Lord Jesus has come to die at God's appointed time. And according to the decree of God, and in the outworking of the providence of God, he is actively avoiding excessive popular enthusiasm, which would have brought on and precipitated his death. No, his death, there is an appointed time. And until that time, he is almost moving and ministering under the radar. He doesn't want to create this frenzy of activity, which will force the Jewish religious religious leaders' hands. So for now, you keep quiet. And you keep it to yourself. It is a surprising command. Did you get all of those? Six surprises. Surprising tragedy. A surprising delay. A surprising question. A surprising death. A surprising miracle. And a surprising command. Now Mark's intent, obviously, the intent of all of Scripture when we read it, primarily, foremost, is what? It is to put on display the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might gaze on him. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to to see what, what, what Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is revealing, is emphasizing concerning Christ that we might gaze on him. But just before we do, before we do, there is an extremely important pastoral application to be derived from these verses. Do you know what it is? It's as follows. And let this sink in. It may seem a bit weird at first. 
God's timing is confounding. That is an extremely important pastoral application that we must learn, we must derive from these verses. God's timing, from our perspective, we might even say God's sense of timing, from our sinful, finite perspective, is downright confounding. Have you ever stood where Jairus stood? Perhaps not the death of a child. Some other tragedy, some other calamity, some other trial, some other tribulation. And from your perspective, from my perspective, from our perspective, we are in the midst of an emergency. Time, time is crucial. Time is of the essence. God has to do something, and God has to do something now. And what is perplexing, what is disturbing, and what is confounding is this, that so often when we find ourselves in the midst of what we perceive to be urgent, we perceive that God isn't all that concerned. It's true, isn't it, friend? That's Jairus' experience. There is nothing, at that moment of time, there is nothing more important on the face of the earth than his daughter dying back home. Why doesn't the Lord Jesus break into a sprint and lay his hands on her? Why is he now talking to this woman whose condition is chronic? He can deal with her at any time. Why is he asking who touched my garments? Just come with me. I'll send out an inquiry later and they'll find out who touched your garments. Do you not understand the urgency? He seems... Unconcerned. Have you ever been there? I'm there all the time. I'm there daily. This has to happen. This has to happen now. Why doesn't it seem so important to God? Dare I say, why does he seem to be dragging his feet? Let me give you four things I'm still learning, and I'll be learning till the day God takes me home. Here they are. Number one, God does not share my sense of urgency, nor does he share yours. It's true. You'll be learning that the rest of your life. God does not share our sense of urgency. Number two, God never operates on my time schedule. He never has, and he never will. God does not operate on our time schedule. Number three, and this one hurts, God never consults with me. I don't know why. I have such an infinite view of things, and, and, I, and surely I know what's best in this any given situation. Why does, it, why does he never consult with you? Never has. And I expect he never will. The fourth is this. God has reasons for delaying. God has reasons. He has a plethora, a multitude of reasons for delaying. Two are emphasized in the text. Number one. Christ delays in this instance, and God delays when, when we find ourselves empathizing with Jairus in the midst of what we perceive to be urgent and don't understand why, why God isn't doing something. It, it emerges from the text in Jairus' case. Christ delays, why? To strengthen Jairus' faith. You see, the delay is Intentional. What the Lord Jesus does for the woman is in the first place for the woman. In the second place, and equally important, it is for Jairus' benefit. 
He is strengthening Jairus' faith. How? By putting pressure right where it hurts on Jairus' faith. Bringing him to an end of himself and yet reinforcing through what he does in the life of this woman that Jairus must look to him no matter what happens and no matter what the time schedule is and no matter how things transpire, Jairus must look to him. Do not fear, only believe. Have you been watching any of the Olympics this past week? I hazard a guess one or two of you have. When you start watching the shot put, turn it off. You've been watching too much. But I've been watching the Olympics, and I, I, I just stand and wonder at these gymnasts, right? They make it look so easy, just flying all over the place. I don't know how many feet in the air. And then these men and women sprinting down the track, and these, these swimmers almost gliding above, above the water. They make it look easy. Why? Because it has been so difficult. Friend, I guarantee it. Anything that looks easy in life has come at the cost of difficulty. You see, those muscles and their timing and their ability is the, all we are seeing is the culmination of years and years and years of toil and discipline and exercise. Friend, your faith is just like that. Faith unexercised becomes what? Kind of flabby around the middle. That's what it becomes. Faith must be exercised. Exercised how? There must be strain. And often God will delay. When we think the world's falling apart, when we, we just can't see the daylight tomorrow. We don't understand how the world could go on unless this is resolved now. God will delay. Why? He is strengthening our faith. He is applying pressure where it hurts. And he is applying pressure, why? So that we exert faith, discipline. Why? So that our faith is strengthened. Why? This brings us to the second reason why he delays. He does so in order to glorify himself. Yeah, don't misunderstand me. If Christ had responded right away to Jairus and gone straight and just... You know, yep, somebody touched my garments, I'll be back, I'll swing back in half an hour to find out who it was, but there's something I really need to deal with now at Jairus' house. If he had done that, and on he had gone, and, and, and had arrived there before the little girl dies, and had laid his hands on her and healed her, that would have been marvelous, right? That would have been a manifestation of his glory. What did Jairus get? Oof. Jairus didn't merely witness the Lord Jesus healing his daughter. What does Jairus and his wife see? They see the Lord Jesus through the uttering of the most simple of phrases, little girl arise. They see her raised from the dead. The manifestation of his glory. Learn this lesson. God does not work when it pleases us most. He works when it glorifies him best. God does not work when it pleases us most. He works when it glorifies him best. I remember this conversation. I think I've shared this with you before, months ago, vividly with a friend. Shared he'd been going through some of those Old Testament stories with, uh, with his young son, and you know David and, and Daniel and Esther and Ruth and all these heroes of the faith. 
and uh, had been doing so for some weeks, and finally asked his son, what, what, what have you learned about God? What has all of this taught you about God? And you know what that little boy's response was? God always waits till the last minute. He always waits till the last minute. He does not share our sense of urgency, brothers and sisters. He never operates on our time schedule. He never consults with us. And he has his reasons for delaying primarily the strengthening of our faith and the magnifying of his glory. Now, come full circle. Let's gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we learn? And this, this, this just flows wonderfully into our participation in the Lord's Supper. Because as Christ is put on display in this text, Mark's goal, the Spirit's goal, is to engender faith in us. Just as the entire incidents engender faith in this woman and engender faith in this man, Jairus, the entire narrative is designed by the Spirit of God to engender faith in us. And so what do we see of Christ in these verses? The first is this. We see that Christ is the king. Unequivocally. No doubt, no question. Without dis- disputation. We see that Christ is the king. Understand, Mark has a definite theological agenda. He is a theologian. And Mark is writing for a theological purpose. He is seeking to convey something, prove something. He tells us right at the outset of the book, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the son of God. And he proves it. He puts it on display time and time again. That the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. The Lord Jesus is the King. And the Lord Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. Secondly, here's what we're to see. As the King, Christ conquers sin. As the King, Christ conquers sin. When we come to the end of chapter 5, that is verse 43, we've arrived at the end of a, of a marvelous unit. The unit begins back in chapter 4, verse 35. So, you know, just just put a line back in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Put a line there and then put another line at the end of chapter 5, verse 43. Here's a unit because in this unit, Mark does something marvelous. He just gives us four incidents. Boom, 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 boom. Right in an order, rhymes them off. In the first, what do we see the Lord Jesus doing? Calming the storm. In the second, what do we see the Lord Jesus doing? Casting out legion. And the third, what do we see the Lord Jesus doing? Healing this woman of a physical ailment, affliction, disease. And in the fourth, what do we see the Lord Jesus doing? We see him raising this little girl from the dead. Did you see the four? Let me repeat them. We have a storm that pertains to the realm of nature. We have legion pertaining to the realm of the demonic. We have this physical ailment pertaining to the realm of disease. And we have the death of this little girl, the realm of death. Do you know what we have in these four all-encompassing incidents? The effects of the fall. That's the fall, my friends. And at the root of the fall stands what? Your sin. And my sin. The cause of it all. As a result of the fall, creation is cursed. The storm, it has been subjected to futility. Because of the fall, our sin, the curse, Satan is the prince of this world. Because of this fall, there are all sorts of physical ailments and diseases. Because of the fall, we die. In this unit, this section, we see life. We see the harshness of life under the fall, the curse. How this should engender anger in us whenever we think of our sin. 
It should engender compassion in us when we think of the state and condition and predicament of our fellow man. It should engender repentance in us, Godward, heavenward. And brothers and sisters, as we look to the future, it should engender hope. Oh, it should engender a great, unquenchable, insatiable longing that a day is coming when the curse will be removed. A day is coming when all creation will be renovated. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. What secures it all? It is Calvary's cross. You see, Christ exerting his power and demonstrating his authority in these four spheres is pointing seminally here at this stage of his ministry to what he will accomplish and the effects of what he will accomplish at Calvary's cross. That it is through Calvary's cross that all creation will be restored. It is through Calvary's cross that Satan and his minions are ultimately defeated. It is through Calvary's cross that all physical ailment and all that afflicts us will be removed. And it is through Calvary's cross that death is ultimately vanquished. You see, Christ is our king. And as a king, he conquers sin. Third truth is this. As the king, Christ subdues. I've already alluded to it. Let me draw it out a little more. Subdues death. And I love that little phrase. It is a precious little phrase in verse 41. Taking her by the hand. He said to her, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. You'll forgive me if I'm not. Talitha Kumi, probably not too bad. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, why this is extremely significant is for the following reason. These are the exact words a mother would use on that bright, sunshiny morning when her daughter's still fast asleep in her bed up in the room at 7 o'clock in the morning and it's time to get up. And she would begin to just walk up those stairs. She would enter the room and she would utter these very words. Little girl, arise. We might say, honey, get up. Sweetheart, it's time to get up. The Lord Jesus takes this motherly phrase, this tender phrase, and he utters it in the ears of this dead little girl. Little girl, arise. And death is God. Do you see that the Lord Jesus has power to subdue death? We sing that hymn. It's wonderful. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, when Christ descends, he will descend not merely with a little tender phrase, little girl, get up. He's going to descend with a shout. And the earth will give up. It's dead. It is a coming, glorious resurrection, secured, purchased, guaranteed by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Fourth truth is this. As the king, Christ merits faith. Christ merits faith. Let me repeat it. I made these comments a couple Sundays ago. Friends, it is not the quality of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith. The object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. The object of our faith is a great king, a king who has conquered sin, a king who subdues death, 
and a king who exhorts us centuries later, do not be afraid, only believe. He utters that command right now as we anticipate the Lord's Supper. Because our participation in the Lord's Supper is an expression of faith. It is partake and believe. That we come to the bread, we come to the cup, and here we have these visible reminders, symbols of what the Lord Jesus has indeed accomplished for us. And these are for the strengthening of our faith. And so with that before us, bow with me now as I lead us in prayer. And as I seek the Lord's blessing upon what we've heard from his word this day, and equally important, seek his blessing upon what we are about to participate of. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is sweet to our taste, sweeter than honey to our mouth. It is a lamp to our feet and light to our path. Your word is our heritage, the joy of our hearts. Uphold as we pray according to your promises. Father, we thank you for the new covenant. We praise you for Christ's atoning sacrifice and eternal intercession. We praise you for the Holy Spirit who has written your law upon our hearts. In that same spirit, we pray that the eyes of our hearts might be opened. May Christ be known to us in the partaking of the bread and in the partaking of the cup. Honor, glory, and power be to him who sits upon the throne from now unto all eternity. Amen.